The history of the internet and of pornography are deeply intertwined. They mix and overlap that to see one without the other is to only capture half the picture. And the human desire for sex is often a desire that has driven the development of many of the technologies that underpin modern life. Take for example in 1956, the first ever digital image was created, coded on punch cards by an anonymous IBM engineer on state-of-the-art military computer systems. And this image was a pin-up, a reclining nude. But when people write histories of the internet, Danny Ash rarely gets a mention. Ash never attended the top-class universities that we associate with today's tech class. She never finished high school leaving to start stripping at the age of 17. Yet her impact on the development and popularization of the internet is unquestionable. Ash was born in South Carolina in the late 60s, but started stripping after moving to Washington. Her early experiences of working as a dancer were not always positive, and the power that club owners and managers had over dancers had the potential to put workers in sometimes dangerous and insecure situations. After following the advice of her managers at one Florida club to sell videos of her dancers, she was arrested live on stage and had to spend the night in a cell. After recognizing her as a well-known dancer, her clothes were stolen by the guards. She was abandoned by management and her agent, neither of them making any attempt to help her. She was self-employed without workplace protections on her own. And it was at this point she vowed to take control of her working environments and never to leave herself at the whim of others. In 1995, Ash kept hearing about this thing called, called the internet and she was intrigued. She'd also heard from friends that images of her were being shared around chat forums. And so she went online for the first time. She became an active member of Usenet, an early network of bulletin boards, similar to a site like Reddit now. And what she discovered was an active community of men who she could interact with, get to know and speak to. And she used this nascent technology to build a following, a fan club. After a couple months of being part of this community, many started encouraging her to make her own website. Initially, she hired web developers, but none of them could realize her vision, achieve exactly what she wanted. So armed with $8,000 of equipment and an HTML how-to book, she coded Danny's Hard Drive, a softcore porn site, which for the first two years after launching was the most popular site on the internet. As Ash stated in a 2002 interview, I literally did everything. I did the web design and graphics. They were terrible, but I did them. I built all my own accounting systems. I built my own databases. Sex workers have often been early adopters of digital technologies. The term cool girl emerged from how sex workers were often some of the first people to install phone lines in the city. Likewise with the internet, with many sex workers coding and developing personal websites to advertise, long before this became the norm. But sex workers didn't just take advantage of technological developments, 
they were driving them. Real-time streaming and the transmission of high-quality videos is something we take for granted now. But in the late 90s, these technologies just didn't exist. Likewise, getting customers to part with their hard-earned cash required the development of secure online payment systems. Many of these systems were developed and implemented first on porn sites by Ash and her contemporaries. In the context of Danny's hard drive, they developed to such an extent that Ash was able to add a subsidiary side of her business, marketing and selling these technical products, the payment and streaming services they had developed. By the turn of the century, Ash's company was making upwards of $6 million a year and employed 50 staff. Then in 2004, she sold her company and promptly disappeared from the public eye. The story of Danny's hard drive is important because it highlights the central role that sex workers have and continue to play in the development of the web. The cruel irony is that sex workers continually find they are chased around the web, unable to make a home as government legislation and social stigma mean they are continually pushed off social media platforms and denied access to the payment system that their labour helped to create. I'm Robbie Waring, and in this episode of the Farewell Podcast, I speak to Dr. Heatherberg, an academic and writer based at Washington University. Heather's work looks at working conditions in the porn industry, and our conversation, recorded last year, looks at the platformerization of sex work and the changing workplace conditions that platforms like OnlyFans have ushered in for workers. I hope you enjoy the show. I'm Heather Berg. I'm an assistant professor of women, gender, and sexuality studies at Washington University in St. Louis. Um, my first book is called Porn Work, Sex, Labor, and Late Capitalism. And it looks at porn workers' strategies for navigating and sometimes subverting precarity. Um, the book that I'm working on right now is an intellectual history of the sex worker left. So exploring similar themes, but uh, taking a, a little bit of a detour. Great. Thank you so much. Um, and I wonder if we could start off, if you could just describe us a little bit, kind of like um, what it's like for workers in the porn industry? Um, how do they make their living? Um, and what kind of sources of income do they tap into other than um, their kind of form of scene work, the sort of scene work that they undertake? Yeah. Well, in some ways, um, the, my first piece of an answer uh, addresses the, the last part of your question, which is to say that there really isn't an industry anymore. The porn industry, as we've you know, perhaps traditionally known it, just doesn't exist. There is no cohesive uh, community of performers, producers, uh, studios. Um, during the first years that I was doing field work, um, much of the, the industry, which I think there was a moment when we could still call it that, was still um, kind of consolidated in Southern California, and particularly in Los Angeles, um, in Las Vegas, in Nevada. And, and so much of that has become diffused. And so with it, um, both the kind of self-regulating capacities of what used to be an industry, but also our ability, you know, as scholars to even like talk about the, the porn industry as a thing. Um, so I think rather than, than a porn industry that we could talk about unified working conditions in, we're looking at a, a pretty widely dispersed community of more and more um, performers who produce their own content. 
Um, and so in terms of what, what that means for working conditions, there's just a huge range of what this looks like on the ground. And I think that that's, that's mirrored in gig working conditions more broadly, right? There's no, there's no one set of conditions that we can identify, um, you know, which makes organizing harder, um, but it also gives people some room to maneuver that I think they can find creative, creative cracks in through which to, to move. I think it'd be great to jump straight on to kind of that point that you began to pick up about kind of we've seen this kind of radical change in the way in which kind of the porn industry is is kind of structured. Um, so what does it look like now to be a porn performer in in the year 2022? Right. Um, well, uh, this also gets to the piece of your last question that I forgot to answer, which is what what kind of various hustles are people doing? And so. Um, what it looks like to be a porn performer is that performing in porn makes up a really small um, part of your work week, your work day. It can still make up quite a large part of one's work identity. Um, part of that is because of the hierarchy and this um, sense among many civilians, that's to say non-sex workers, but also some sex workers too, and certainly a, a hierarchy in the law, you know, this idea that that different kinds of sex work um, are hierarchized and not just according to exposure to stigma, but according to criminalization too. Um, and so for that reason, a lot of people identify as porn stars or porn um, performers, even if they're doing a whole host of other kinds of sex work. Um, the other reason to identify that way is because, again, because of this hierarchy or hierarchy, it's higher status. Um, and so being uh, you know, self-identifying as a porn star who sometimes does in-person work or escorting has a different kind of status than someone who primarily identifies in a public-facing way um, as an escort who sometimes produces content. So people are very strategic about how they identify. But most people, most sex workers do more than one kind of sex work. Um, and that's that's been true for a long time. But I think in in this moment of diffusion and digitization, it becomes even more so. I think one of the things that OnlyFans has done, OnlyFans has done is it's really kind of captured the popular zeitgeist. I think like there was something interesting I read the other day, which was the idea that we don't actually really know what the effects of digitization uh, have been on the kind of way in which the sex industry has kind of is undertaken to a certain extent or the like the scale of um at which kind of people are um, accessing sex work but what it's done is it's massively increased the visibility of it um and kind of it's really mainstreamed in a really kind of um in a huge way as well um and i kind of wanted to ask how can we situate historically the emergence of these kind of forms of platforms where have they come from uh, and what's their kind of lineage and also can we link this in with kind of some of the more broader kind of scale changes within our economy and our society that we've seen in kind of like the last 40 years of neoliberalism right yeah it's a great question i think um on the one hand platformization exists of course you know beyond porn in the sex industry we we see it in um i'm sure your listeners are aware right um everything from rideshare apps to delivery etc i think one thing that is particular in the porn context and this isn't to say that the modes of exploitation are completely different there um but whereas a lot of scholars of the gig economy in straight or civilian jobs talk about platformization as an invention of 
of tech disruptors that then gets handed down to workers who uh, become hyper exploited through their use of it. Uh, platformization in the sex work context is is in some ways reversed. It is the t- tech industry's theft of sex workers' ideas for how to access customers more directly, customers and fans. And so it's not the case that that OnlyFans developers thought of a smarter, you know, like Uber developers thought of a smarter way to exploit drivers and developed an app to do that and engage in a process of tech, tech, excuse me, disruption. Um, That's, that's not, we don't have an equivalent of that in the case of OnlyFans, for example, but rather that since the 1990s, sex workers have been really creative about figuring out ways to distribute their own content and to cut out the middleman tech in this kind of process of catch-up, um, civilian tech, that is, um, has figured out ways to, to kind of expropriate um, those those means of, of accessing consumers. So I think that's one major difference. Um, and that filters down into working conditions in all sorts of ways, um, such that the sex workers on platforms like OnlyFans do deal with similar issues to, say, Uber drivers insofar as they are looking at, you know, constantly changing terms of service, uh, have very little control over chargebacks when um, fans or clients complain, things like this, you know, lack access to workplace health benefits, all of this, all of these kind of costs of, of digitization and precarization. Um, but they also take a much higher cut than gig workers in straight economies. And I think that's that's can't be forgotten. Um, and part of that is, again, um, because of the ways that, that sex workers themselves have been leading the charge here. Um, so that has all been absolutely disrupted by Fausta Sesta and other uh, assaults on sex workers' ability to use the Internet to make a living. Um, but there are important ways in which digital sex work um, has much better conditions than other forms of digital gig work. It's a really interesting and really important point of kind of that idea of the reversal of it. Actually, these are kind of strategies which have been employed and kind of incredible ingenuity in the history of sex workers kind of in using kind of the internet from the very early days and like some of the original kind of like uh, live streaming technology came from sex workers like developing being at the vanguard of this development and it's really interesting to think about the politics of like kind of that kind of uh, extraction by kind of these kind of companies with no real history or lineage in in sex work or kind of engagement with it, but taking that kind of those ideas and those kind of technologies and that kind of existing industry, which has been developed by sex workers themselves as a means to position themselves to extract rent through that same process. Absolutely. Yeah. And I think, you know, there's so there's such a tendency on the part of the the mainstream or civilian labor left to to have a kind of technophobic perspective on these shifts and to again imagine that that new technologies are are always big tech capital figuring out better ways to to extract surplus and you know that's sometimes true but i think in this case it misses a lot as you say about about sex workers ingenuity and and the um the, its centrality to this history
I wonder if we could talk a little bit about kind of, it's it's really difficult to say, and perhaps it's too broad, but the the kind of historically and in the present, how can we characterise working conditions across the sector? Uh, and what are the kind of forms of uh, modes of working that kind of characterise um, porn work, um, both kind of in traditional scene work and in kind of direct-to-consumer kind of, uh, in terms of legal status, in terms of kind of the experience of the work, is there any kind of like broad things that we can say about the sector as a whole? Mm-hmm. Yeah, in terms of through lines, um, I think one is is that's really crucial is that porn workers have always been gig workers. Um, there there are some limited exceptions of, of folks who had um, annual contracts to perform. Um, and this is really a minority in the industry and is increasingly just obsolete. But but since the the dawn of um, of uh, really small budget um, clip kind of the early progenitors of the clip I suppose um, uh, in the 1950s and 60s to the golden era um, of you know f- full length feature films um, and into the 80s video era and and to to the digitization um, that we we've come to now. Um, porn workers have been gig working. They have been hustling across various sectors. Um, they have, like other gig workers, spent as much time trying to get work as they do actually working, um, insofar as we measure working as, as what's paid. So I think that's the biggest thing. And I think that that, that kind of long historical memory for the experiences of gig work um, means that porn workers are a particularly good community to, to listen to in terms of strategies for, for navigating these conditions. Um, so that includes, you know, just the day-to-day conditions of work, the uncertainty, um, constantly having to, to kind of renegotiate one's terms. But to your question about legal status um, in the U.S. context, it, which is what, where I'll focus, um, it means shared precarity vis-a-vis the law um, alongside other gig workers. And this is another, I think, frustration of mine in, in, the, in terms of the contemporary left discussion of, of gig work, this idea that precarity is new, the idea that um, lack of protection under labor law is somehow new and this like, emergent crisis when it's been you know, the status of, of sex workers, of domestic workers, of agricultural workers. Um, since this was written into law in, in, in the U.S. context in the New Deal era. So, so this isn't new, um, and, and it's, of course, magnified for sex workers who also deal with stigma and, um, you know, ranging forms of criminalization. So since the 1980s, producing porn has been legal, um, but, but occupies a really liminal status in terms of labor law. And I, I think one of the key questions that we have to ask is kind of like, how does the stigma surrounding sex work shape our whole discussion surrounding this industry? Um, particularly when we think about things like working conditions and labor rights. Yeah, I mean, um, I think, again, like so many of the forms of precarity that porn workers confront are shared with other gig workers, but there are really significant ways in which they are are magnified because of anti-sex work stigma. Um, I think some crucial areas in which that's true um, include occupational health regulation that so often um, in the eyes of the state has been designed to protect the public from 
sex workers rather than to protect sex workers at work. Um, and so what that looks like in porn is uh, a really kind of convoluted con conversation around occupational health, which slides into public health in ways that we don't see in straight or mainstream industries. Um, and then I see that in particular in conversations about condom use and the idea that it, it's incumbent on porn workers to demonstrate sexual health rather than incumbent on the state to make sure that people have safe workplaces. Those, those are really two very different approaches to occupational health regulation, of course. Um, and, and I think that that becomes really glaring there. Um, other places in, in which the stigma um, really shapes the experience, of course, sex workers' um, recent struggles over banking, which is not a totally new crisis, but has been increasing in the years past post-FOSTA-SESTA. Um, but the struggles for banking access um, are a huge, huge area of focus for sex worker organizing right now. And, um, and I think it's not a mistake that this is really coming down to sex workers' ability to get paid for their labor. Um, so because obscenity uh, battles have been fought and, and won on the side of free speech more often than not, um, anti-porn advocates have, have moved away from trying to clean up the internet as such to, um, to trying to make sure that nobody can get paid <laughs> for being naked online. And this, uh, this has had really disastrous effects for people's working conditions and, and their ability to eke out a living. Um, and then finally, I think we see stigma really glaringly in terms of, of porn workers' ability to just move around the world. So, you know, whether that be literal mobility across borders or um, things like access to competent health care, um, access to legal systems that respect their, their right to um, parental custody, access to housing. I mean, so some workers in my, in my book talked about one's sex work history as, as a kind of haunting that even if you're not presently doing the work, um, it's a thing that sticks to you and, yeah, and really shapes your ability to, to move in the world. Yeah, and I think it's so interesting with the debate surrounding kind of labor conditions and labor rights within the industry. It's like you have to scrape past so much discussion about even the existence of the industry to get on to then discussing about something like labor rights that it feels like it's it fairly you so rarely get past that first step to be able to actively engage with something like working conditions. Right. And and so often in this case the things that are most important to workers on the ground you know, they don't fit neatly into the categories of labor struggle that civilian labor unions, for example, have historically prioritized. It's, um, it's not the same kinds of fights. And I think that the civilian labor movements, its own horophobia, but, but also kind of misunderstanding about, about gig workers' own um, political potential has led to a situation in which those questions aren't being asked. Um, so such that the mainstream labor movement doesn't see struggles over banking access as a working conditions issue. Um, and we've just seen a really striking lack of solidarity around these questions. So I'm trying to think about what it would look like if, if another group of workers faced potential job loss overnight 
in the way that OnlyFans producers did last summer. Um, and much of the civilian left was just absolutely silent on this, you know, but, but one, uh, cereal factory, you know, will, will call strike. And that should deserve attention. Absolutely. But if we're thinking about scale, like the numbers of working class people, um, put at risk, I, it's, it just becomes quite striking where the attention goes. Completely. And there's one thing that I think in the narrative that I feel is quite sometimes within the popular narrative is that we have thrown down our throats within headlines is kind of the success stories of something like OnlyFans kind of, you know, we, we kind of, particularly with the pandemic, we've seen these kind of headlines of these kind of wild success stories. Um, and how much do these like represent the everyday experience of someone working via these platforms and what kind of like constitutes the real graft and hustle involved with making a living off these? Yeah. I mean, they, they, those success stories represent, uh, as you might imagine, just a tiny percentage of people using sites like OnlyFans to hustle. Um, but, but within that, or kind of beyond that space are tens of thousands of people who are using, say, an OnlyFans hustle to make their lives a little bit better. Not, uh, yeah, not to make millions, um, there's not a triumphant story at the end of this, but it matters if working class people are, are using platforms like this. Again, not the platforms aren't giving them anything. Like this is not a celebration of the platform, but if, if people are, are using these platforms to grab a little bit more autonomy, a little more grocery money, um, a little bit more better ability to leave abusive relationships or whether those be uh, romantic or in the workplace. Um, and so particularly for people with disabilities, um, for trans people, for racialized people, for folks, um, for caretakers and parents, um, for folks for whom mainstream work is especially violent, um, this can really transform things. Now, I think it's it's totally worth noting that, that those aren't the media stories here. You know, that's that's not um, that's not what people want to see, and I think uh, that has a lot to do with classism and again um, uh, disinterest in the stories of the the very working class communities that I've just identified. So people love stories for yeah, for various reasons of, of white cis thin, young um, women who are, yeah, raking it in. I think part of that is, um, yeah, again, ab about these these various hierarchies. And the other piece is, um, I think there's a way that that plays into a kind of post-feminist narrative about um, about women as such ability to, to use these systems to their benefit. So there's a lot that's wrong about that narrative. Um, and also, I don't think that the the right correction to it is to say that that um, that nobody's grasping just a little bit more autonomy from these spaces. A big thanks to Dr. Heather Burke for taking the time to speak to me. At Fair Work, we believe all work can and should be characterised by fair pay, fair conditions, fair management, fair contracts and fair representation. Platforms ultimately have the power to improve standards and the ability to choose to. Many platforms operate in numerous countries around the world and whilst every country, every city and every worker is unique, 
Many of the experiences and issues experienced by workers are transnational. In addition, platforms often operate across multiple countries and the practices which they employ have huge impacts on the lives of workers around the globe. Platforms can take a proactive approach to ensure that the work they provide is fair and decent. We're actively campaigning to improve the conditions for workers around the world and hold platforms to account. You can find out more at fair.work. This episode was written and produced by Robbie Warren and our music was composed by Louis Bollet.